trust yourself, own your experience and what your responses might be. And it's giving you a script. You have the confidence and the self-knowledge to say, I'm going to move on and create an experience that really is truly your own so that you can get something out of it. There's a kind of radical honesty of not having to take everything. That's our guest. And she's not talking about major life experiences, though I think her words can apply. She's talking about time spent walking through a gallery and looking at art. Have you ever done that and felt so alone in the room, but not in a good way? You're in a museum or gallery, you're with a friend or a date you were trying to appear kind of smart in front of, and everyone is looking at the artwork and they are pensive, absorbed. There is meaning in the room, but you just aren't getting it. Or what about when everyone just breezes by something you find totally intriguing. Oh well, time's up. Moving on. Welcome back to Material Fields, where we explore the intimate relationships between creative people and the materials they have fallen in love with. Material Fields is sponsored by Brown Sugar Botanicals, a Black, queer, and trans-owned herbal CBD business based in Oakland, California, founded by Kalima and Chris, two Black, non-binary millennials with a strong love for all things hemp. They offer CBD-infused salves, tinctures, and even herbal smoking blends, and they ship nationwide. Put your order in at www.brownsugarbotanicals.com and use the promo code MATERIALFEELS, all one word, for a 10% discount. This is part two of our exploration of time as a material. Last episode, we spoke with Alicia Toldi and Carolina Porres of Pinewood Atlas, a project cataloging small and unconventional artist residencies across the United States. Today, we'll be chatting with Wells Frey Smith, a gallerist based in London and founder of an engaging and slightly irreverent online community on Instagram called What the Fuck Is This? I met Wells online through a good friend, and because I instantly trust someone more if they swear freely, we became fast friends. Whoops, I have neglected to define our material. There are a lot of ways to define time, so let's take a quick little gander through a few different lenses. In physics, time is defined as the numerical measurement of material change. The arrow of time goes one way. What we did in the past is always behind us. But mentally and emotionally, many of us can agree this, this truth is like flexible. Visit a familiar place. The smells, the sounds, the light unleashes a flood of memories. Locations hold time. But the second law of thermodynamics states that we live in a universe where a drop expands, time progresses in one direction. Or could time just be an illusion generated by the physical limitations of our world? So the way the material world acts is a lot different than how we perceive it. Our biology can warp our perception. Chemicals in our brains, like dopamine, result in the overestimating of time, while substances we consume, like alcohol, result in the underestimation of time. And what about linguistics? Language can reveal how people in particular regions experience time. Our native tongue may indicate that time is nonlinear, layered, scarce, or abundant. For instance, there is no future tense in Sicilian. I repeat, there is no future tense in Sicilian. So I will be moving there shortly. They have very long dinners and I think I will fit in quite nicely. Which brings me to culture. In our culture here in the States, or at least our mainstream culture in the States before COVID, time was defined by a unit of measurement that coincided with a dollar amount. Most of us have to conform our entire lives to this measurement of time for profit or for survival. And so there are different ways to define and experience time. Yes, ways that serve the soul and ways that numb it. 
Today, I want to focus on time as a material for processing your response to artwork, installations, galleries, museums. Now, this may be tricky, especially if even before the pandemic, you didn't typically spend a lot of time with art. Wherever you fall on the spectrum of art appreciation, you're here with me now, so let's do this. Did you know art can upset and inspire people in equal measure? Like the banana Maurizio Catalan taped to a wall or Banksy's frame that doubled as a shredder. I personally have a lot of feelings about art, from a rousing debate over the merits of minimalism to an impassioned rant urging people to stop associating Georgia O'Keeffe's work solely with vaginas or a delicious afternoon spent in the company of Nick Cave's sound suits. My range of feeling associated with museums and galleries can include derision, disgust, joy, peace, grief, but not everyone accesses these emotions so intensely in the presence of artwork. So let's back it up with some help from our guest, Wells. You are a skeptic. You think, what the fuck is this? You don't think there's anything in it for you. You don't get it. Try to shift your understanding from art as like a noun thing to a verb that it is something that does something to you and for you and no matter what it does that is productive so if it is making you feel thorny and writhe in your skin and not want to spend time with it and you think your son could have done it great question it that has done something for you why spend quality time with artwork What does extra time make space for? How do you process your emotions? How long does it take for a feeling to evolve? Is three seconds enough? There was a fascinating study that was done at the Met in quite a bleak, big brotherish situation. The Met could then track much time people spent in front of each work. They found was the average time someone would spend in front of an artwork was three seconds, which is essentially the amount of time I would argue that you can glance at it and then move on. One of the things that I think may artwork tricky and might make it perceived as being inaccessible is that it is really demanding and it's an art form that requires we spend time with it but often in a way that we don't think about. Because I think if you compare the experience of looking at art to the experience of reading a book, we know that when we're going to sit down and read a book, it's going to take us, you know, 10 minutes to read a chapter and we dedicate that time to it. But we have this idea with art that we can glance it and look at the whole in a split second. But what is actually required is that initial glance and then this process of dissecting and looking deeper and looking deeper and looking deeper. And I think most successful artworks are ones that catch something in me so that I look again and look again and look again. And I think the best curators and the best writers about art are people who can inspire that act of re-looking. When you mention all those emotions that that artists can pour into work, Mm. it's interesting because I, I, go to a space to feel those emotions but I don't know Mm -hmm. if everybody is going into looking at art with that understanding or that even desire to process those feelings people want to go see art because they'll maybe go see it with their friends it seems like a cool thing to do 
certainly if you're going to pay admission for it, you have to have a good reason to go. And having this moment of transformation or feeling a feeling might not always be it, which might be another reason why people don't spend a huge amount of time, you know, because they're there for an experience that's a kind of leisure or entertaining activity rather than an educational activity. I've always focused on process in an almost stubborn way. That's why this show is about materials and not concepts. Lol. (laughs) Uh, It totally is about concepts. That's why I say lol out loud, lol. It means I'm laughing, even though you can tell that I'm not. Moving on. The destination can be a life-changing work of art that illuminates something about society, something about ourselves, and as well as points out, time is an essential ingredient for processing those feelings. And making time for art is an important part of her life. So my experience of going to see art is very intentional. I always make a plan in advance. So I very rarely kind of see it off the cuff. And I'm always prepped for it, which means I dedicate pretty much half a day. It will either be a morning or an afternoon just for the sole intention of seeing art. I will block out my calendar. I always go alone, which is a personal preference, but I like to be able to have the experience of spending as much time as I want with one thing or no time at all and not having to be beholden to the route that someone else wants to take. I like also to be able to process my experience and sit with it a little bit before I immediately start verbalizing that experience to someone else who could be with me. I always bring with me two things, which is my phone, so I can take pictures, which I am so nervous to admit, (laughs) but I always bring my phone and I always bring a notebook of some variety. And often I actually don't write in the notebook, but it brings this sense of kind of security that if there were something that sparked something in me, I could could jot it down afterward. I think that art can activate some type of emotional intelligence or reflection and the, and spending time doing something that isn't about productivity or networking or just all of this stuff that's like embedded in our the capitalistic society that we live in. Mm. And so I was just thinking about how much intention and time you spend in the art world and with experiencing objects and then emotions. And then I was just mm. thinking about how you might also be having, building like a, a skill set within yourself to handle non-art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's also such an interesting question because I think if, if I'm being really honest, the way that I see art in a professional capacity is really different to the way that I see in this experience art in a a personal one. There is a certain pace, I think, to the art world where we are hungry to consume. So with curators, it's like, how many shows did you see today? Did you see this one, this one, this one, this one, this one? And it becomes about quantity of content rather than the richness of the experience. Often when I go see exhibitions for myself, it's in the context of an artist state where I can just slow down, really maybe only go see one object. It doesn't even have to be a whole exhibition. That experience to me is the far richer one than going to go see 12 shows in an afternoon. 
also feels more, yeah, more personal. Wells describes the process of spending time with artwork as a solo retreat, but processing the emotions that come up and understanding a work of art in the context of society can be a communal process too. Here's where what the fuck is this comes back in. If the aim is to increase people's confidence looking at art, the one way that seems so fundamental to doing that is modeling people who have the audacity to share what they think, who is not a white male academic lecturer. What the fuck is this is an Instagram account where Wells posts pictures, videos, and questions about various art pieces. She asks people for their thoughts and feelings, unpacks the responses, and then provides educational information on the artist and their intentions. The interactions on what the fuck is this have been amazing. This is wild. This made me feel, oh, okay. This made me feel, oh, Is it pain? How do I feel? Uh, stressed. The idea that the subject is the light, not the objects, is mind-changing. Simplicity is good. Wow. Ooh, I love this. And I have been so heartened by people's responses. Firstly, that people are responding at all and feel impelled to do so, but also because people have picked up on incredibly detailed, sophisticated, complicated things I have missed and I haven't seen. And there's been this moment of a communal voice, everyone sharing their own insights and feeding that back to the world in a way that I hope can model lots of people having different responses. So for example, there was a piece by an artist called Doho Su in London where he had built, it was a piece of public sculpture where he had built a scale replica of his childhood home in Korea on top of this bridge. I genuinely thought this was an accident for years. People often talk about the work as a kind of reflection on migration and what it might mean to have a physical home that isn't contextually your home. Moving across cultures is inevitably precarious. And the ruby slippers are not always forthcoming. People who also related it to these amazing protests where there have been these big moves to gentrify areas. It's happened in China and Korea, but also in the UK. And as a form of resistance, people haven't sold their property. And so you get what are called these nail houses where they exist as these isolated houses. Everything else around is bulldozed. People have kindly shared their missions, finding things funny, finding things moving. I hope it's just been an open forum where people can share. She's created a tool where people can still experience art on their own and be with themselves and not feel beholden, but then they get to share their feelings and hear from other people in a more structured way. So what got Wells hooked on spending time with artwork in the first place? When did this practice begin? I went to go see a piece called This Is Me, This Is You by an artist, Ronnie Horn. And it was on display at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York in 2009. And I went to New York for the first time as a 16-year-old because I thought I was getting ready for college. I knew I wanted to study art history. I had a friend who lived there and experiencing art felt like something that I wanted to invest more time in. So I took myself to New York 
went by myself and had never been to the Whitney before. For those who haven't been there, it was at the time in this building on the Upper East Side that really didn't fit in with the architecture of the city as a whole. It was built in 1966, designed by a European architect called Marcel Breuer in this brutalist tradition. So it reads as like a massive monumental concrete monolith and the facade is staggered almost like a staircase. So you have these protrusions that come out. So me being 16, new to a city, arrived and thought, oh, fuck, <laughs> I'm going to have an experience. You know, it kind of prepared me for thinking I was going to see something quite wacky. And the way that the interior architecture is set up is that basically every floor on the Whitney is the same. And mm -hmm. that is important for my experience because... You have to take an elevator to the exhibition spaces. I took the elevator up. It opened onto the second floor gallery where immediately there was this artwork that was the grid of 48 photographs of a young girl in her adolescence. Each of the photographs taken over a period of two years and she's in her everyday life doing pretty normal things like taking a bath, having just woken up, eating an ice cream. And there's this sense of complete casualness because it's like you've just caught her in her everyday moment, but also intimacy. I looked at these 48 photographs, didn't really think much of them, continued through the exhibition. The next part of the exhibition is on the fourth floor. And the elevator doors open and there immediately are 48 photographs arranged in a grid basically what looks to be exactly the same thing to the extent that I had to double take and say am I actually on the fourth floor did the elevator move are all these pictures identical yep they pretty much look identical and then started this process of trying to figure out if they were the same why would the same thing be shown on the second floor and on the fourth floor? Trying to think back to maybe half an hour before to when I first saw those images and were there any details I could pick up on that would help me to see if these were the same images or if they were different images. And what I came to learn was that the set on the second floor and the set on the fourth floor were different but they were taken about two seconds apart. So they look pretty much exactly the same. So you do have to play this spot, the difference game, but then started this amazing process of traveling from the second floor to the fourth floor to, to play that game. An amazing example of the way that an artwork can use time uh, because my experience of the work really unfolded over 40 minutes when I first saw the first set to the second set. So it used my time, but it also very much played with the time of the sitter that the photos were taken two seconds apart, but over two years of her life. The biggest thing I felt when I saw that work was complete surprise and also complete awe and wonder because I thought artwork to be powerful had to be obvious and to pack a massive punch. And here was a work that dealt in very, very, very quiet difference, taking something that 
almost looks identical to be able to expose well, the whole work is really about our identity and how it's never fixed and how we are never the same. And Ronnie Horn, nothing will ever be the same ever again. But it's this quite beautiful lesson that has stayed with me. Whew. What did that phrase, nothing will ever be the same, bring up for you? For me, I feel a lot of grief, uh, but also freedom, freedom to live my life in the moment. And it feels kind of like permission to grieve what will never be again. The way we move through a gallery or a museum can teach us a bit about the emotions we make time for. I'm going to assume if you are listening to Material Feels, you are interested in art in some way, shape, or form. And so when you're going through a gallery space or a museum, what are the collections you linger in? What do you kind of speed past? What do you, what do you not get? What makes you cringe? And if going to a gallery or a museum is unimaginable to you right now, think about the hallway in your house or a room you spend a lot of time in. What visuals do you sit with? What have you chosen to surround yourself with? If an art piece brings up uncomfortable feelings, yes, you can just walk away from it and move on. But I'm curious about the type of emotions we can experience when we allot some more time to viewing art. Privilege plays a role here in that certain people can process emotions in public places. There is this feeling of safety for some folks that other folks may not have, whether it's feeling out of place in a highbrow gallery, or if it's that society has labeled your anger as unprofessional or deadly. Maybe your grief is seen as weakness. While it is a human right to have emotions and to take time, it is unfortunately a privilege to process these emotions outwardly and to have autonomy over your time. There is power in artwork. The artists I admire are fighting for the right to process emotions and fighting for the right to have autonomy over their time. So I think in spending time with those finished works, you can be a part of that revolution too, even if you don't make art. An artist who has used time as his medium is Felix Gonzalez Torres in a piece called Perfect Lovers, where he displays two clocks side by side that tick away in unison until one of them falls out of sync, which has to do with the mechanics of the hardware of the actual clock. And it's not something that Felix Gonzalez Torres prefabricated. It's something that just genuinely happens with clocks. You know, we all think that they tick at exactly the same time, that 60 seconds is 60 seconds, but the structure of time as we know it, as this construct, we haven't been able to replicate accurately in analog science or analog manufacturing. So one of them falls out of time. And it is a work that very much has to do with Gonzalez Torres's own experience of time because his partner and lover, a man called Ross in the late, 1980s was diagnosed with AIDS and became something that Gonzalez Torres was afraid of a lot. It was the thing that scared him the most because he felt like it was running out as Ross was getting ill and as he was seeing him deteriorate. So he wanted to tackle the subject head on. And what you get then is each clock essentially being a stand-in for the people in that relationship. So one of them comes to be Felix and the other one comes to be Ross that ticked beat until they then don't. 
and it becomes this great metaphor for life, for falling out of sync because of illness, because of death, this desire to want to always be together. The clocks sit right next to each other. They don't actually touch, but their memory serves me. They're about a centimeter or kind of half an inch apart. So there's this togetherness and closeness that physically is always present as you experience the work and you two clocks as a couple. And I think it's also an example of the way that time isn't experienced equally, that we think of time as something that we, that is fixed, that structures our life, that we all experience in the same way, you know, on an hour, 60 minutes for everyone. Just hearing you describe that made me feel really emotional, actually. Thinking about like time in relation to intimacy and love and then trauma and grief and in relation to what we're all going through with a global pandemic Mm -hmm. and being an inch a centimeter away from each other at all times essentially like we can't be together have you ever fallen out of time with someone or felt so in sync but the world around you kept interrupting Hearing about this piece, I think about how our state of mind, our energy levels, our concept of a day or an hour, it it all can change. We fall in sync with someone, fall out of sync with others. The powerful currents of illness and disability whisk away our loved one or ourselves further and faster downstream. Same water, different current. Sometimes there is nothing we can do to bridge that gap. We can look around and and know we are soaked. We can acknowledge that water, measure the currents, discuss the weather at length over cooling coffee. More painful than ending up out of sync? Trying to ignore the difference. We tell ourselves everything is okay when it is so not. This artist found a way to acknowledge pain while still connecting with love and us, the viewer. We are all united in this moment of observing these objects, a a layered reflection of falling out of sync, all happening at the same time. After my conversation with Wells, I saw that the de Young Museum had reopened. This was last fall, caseloads in San Francisco were down, and I thought this might be my only chance in 2020 to see some finished artwork in person. I was right. During my visit, there was an exhibit called the DeYoung Open, which featured artwork created by artists in the San Francisco Bay Area during the time of COVID. The gallery walls were hung with artwork from floor to ceiling, and viewers could look up each piece in an online database where they could purchase it directly from the artist. Usually galleries take a commission, and usually artwork in museum isn't for sale. The DeYoung had utilized every inch of that space to support local artists. It was incredible and overwhelming. Four months later, I still remember it vividly. The colors, shapes, textures, pop culture references, pandemic culture references are saturated in my mind. And while I loved the experience, I was also afraid and sad. It was isolating to do something I used to love so much and feel the anxiety of social distancing, the anxiety of the pandemic. A lot of elders were there. I felt affection and joy as I hadn't seen many older folks all year, and then panic and guilt at having even come to that space. I also felt strange in the permanent collections. Everything felt like it was from another world. 
the pieces felt haunted. I also felt confused about the role of the art world in a post-COVID world. What was the point? It's safe to say, if I had my laminated feelings wheel with me, every slice of that pie would have been highlighted. What the hell are you talking about, you ask? What is a laminated feelings wheel and why don't I have one, you say? Hold that thought, I will come back to this. So I was leaving the space feeling a bit spooked, a bit lost. The art world I was so used to felt unfamiliar. It was also very overstimulating. After months of sameness, it was a lot. And of course, the specter of COVID, despite reduced attendance and social distancing protocol, I was in this state when a museum guard asked me about the recorder dangling around my neck. That's what I said when I went, but what I should have said to you is before we open up, I did a walkthrough. And I said, okay, let me not try to take all this in at once because I know it would be too much for me. That's Melvin Phillips, or Swell Mel, to his friends. Everyone knows him, and he knows everyone. If anyone has spent quality time with artwork and seen the rainbow of emotions a piece can inspire, it's the museum staff who watch over the galleries. As he began to share his experience spending time with finished artwork and observing the emotions of visitors, I asked him if I could record. The audio quality is pretty awful, seeing as we're in a lofty atrium surrounded by people speaking to one another, wondering where the bathroom is, etc. So bear with me, please. Melvin told me about how much time he spends with the artwork. He's also a poet and writes about specific pieces that speak to him. He also sees a lot of people reacting to the same piece over and over and over. The most expressive art viewers, kids. Different uh, docents and teachers for kids here at the museum. And they're always, they're more open to express themselves versus adults. They are feel inhibited to say what it is brought I said of another one. That parent can be with their child. And the child can just blow off something and say, that's what he's seeing the parent. And the parents don't say that. It's the parent, because they have preconceived conception of what it is that they're looking at. They don't want the kid to say anything, so they'll tell them just be. Right. And so they, they shut them down. I experienced it myself. And so when I was growing up, I experienced that. Because I was the youngest. And so if I saw something, if I said something, they're like, well, you don't talk. Yeah, we don't care. Yourself. We don't want to hear what you're going to say. They don't want to have to hear what you have to say. So as a result, this is how kids, I learned this as I got older. That's how kids develop a speech income. Is that person is stepping down from expressing what they're feeling or what it is that they're saying to be able to express themselves in their own creative way. Kids are more open to expressing themselves. They feel uninhibited. The parent could be with their child and the child can just say something. But the parent says, don't say that and shuts them down. That's what happens a lot. Parents have preconceived conceptions about what they are looking at and they don't want the kid to say anything. So they'll just tell them to be quiet. They shut them down. They become fearful of expressing themselves. The power of not only expressing, but being heard got me thinking. Have you ever seen those emotion wheels with all the colors blossoming out from a center of six core emotions? They're usually something along the lines of fear, anger, disgust, sadness, genius, and joy. Color associated with core feelings is also a concept you may have noticed in Pixar's Inside Out. 
I don't know. It's like kind of a cute movie. Uh, I may or may not have cried publicly in the theater. Oh, God, I miss that. Anyway, I was thinking of these feeling wheels when my housemate and I discovered a craft pop-up in my neighborhood, and one of the ceramicists had laminated feelings wheels for sale, so naturally I bought five of them. <laughs> hey, I know some people who could benefit from looking at that wheel and figuring out, identifying some feelings. I started filling out the wheel day to day to track my emotions, to kind of get a heat map of my general feelings. And wow, there are a lot of them. I have a lot of feelings. The wheel hasn't given me any answers or solutions. It just made me aware of my feelings. It also made me realize what feelings I choose to communicate and what feelings I keep inside. It also forced me to face head on what situations and sensations bring up which feelings. Okay, this is getting meta, but stay with me. What if a piece of artwork could be a feelings wheel the artist is trying to communicate to us. And the more we learn about the work, we can empathize, respond internally, see how we feel, express that feeling to others and see how they feel about the artwork. Like that would be so cool if we did that regularly about art and other things. I feel like we have the feelings wheel inside and then we have a feelings wheel we present to others. We all have a different custom go-to color palette we're comfortable mixing and confident expressing maybe you're comfortable vocalizing reds and yellows like me that's anger and joy but not so comfortable with purples and greens fear and disgust and i wonder how much of that palette you are so accustomed to expressing is learned from the authority figures who shushed you in certain circumstances or encouraged you to speak up in other circumstances I feel like the most important takeaway from my chance encounter with Swell Mel was the role that finished artwork can play in helping us learn how to show off our inner feelings wheel and the importance of expressing our reactions to art to learn more about one another. Even though we may be connected in different type of ways and different, you know, when it comes to like, let's say, uh, dealing with what's going on in the world, let's say what's going on in the world right now, but our personal experience, whether we do, are so much different that no one, I'll put it this way, no one experienced something that you're looking at, just like I said earlier, like artwork, just tonight. I can say that for sure. I know this because I've lived it and seen it by working here 10 years. No one sees the same thing the same way let alone experience the same thing the same way. Everybody is different. We are unique human beings. And we have to learn how to get along. Yeah, and talk to each other. And talk to each other. Because <laughs> when we don't, yeah. that's what it's like. episode includes samples from freesound.org, including the ticking of various clocks recorded by Metzik and a wonderfully named loop, New York Jazz, by Fool Boy Media, which you heard playing under Wells' New York Adventure. Material Feels is produced by me, your host, Catherine Monahan. Associate producer Liz Delise composes original music for the show as well. This episode was recorded on unceded Ohlone land in what is now known as Oakland, California. This Valentine's Day, let's remember that love is an action. Give time, money, and resources to local indigenous organizations 
And if conversations about land sovereignty, colonization, or race are not frequent in your circle, share more hard truths with your loved ones and bring those topics up. Take out your feelings wheels, but also your wallets. COVID-19 has had a devastating effect on First Nations people. Please visit firstnations.org and donate to the First Nations COVID-19 Emergency Response Fund, which is helping Native communities respond and recover from the effects of COVID-19. And continue to show up materially for Black and Indigenous folks and for the Asian American community, which has experienced more and more anti-Asian racism as COVID has gone on. Don't forget to slow down and take care. Order your CBD-infused salves, tinctures, and herbal smoking blends from our sponsor, Brown Sugar Botanicals, a Black, queer, and trans-owned herbal CBD business. Visit www.brownsugarbotanicals.com and use the promo Material Feels, all one word, for a 10% discount. The show is still a labor of love. Here's how you can support us. Subscribe and share with your friends and family. Review the show on iTunes, follow the show on Instagram, donate to our Patreon, or send money directly to me if you know me. Next up, we'll be exploring a versatile material with the most serene extrovert I've ever met, paper artist Zai Devecha. We'll discuss how we can create space for ourselves with our chosen materials and how the material world can make visible the invisible.